Ladies and gentlemen, your conference call is about to begin. Here is your moderator, Ms. Marilyn Stern. Thank you, Bonnie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marilyn Stern, Communications Coordinator for the Middle East Forum. Our topic today, Jordan at the Edge, will be addressed by our speaker, Mr. David Shanker. Mr. Shanker, a Jordan specialist at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, directs their program on Arab politics. Previously, he served in the Office of the Secretary of Defense as an advisor on Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and the Palestinian territories. In mid-July, tensions between Israel and Jordan spiked after violence by Israeli Arabs on Israel's Temple Mount resulted in the death of two Israeli policemen and escalated when an Israeli embassy guard in Amman shot and killed two Jordanians. Despite Jordan's strategic relationship with Israel, Jordan's King Abdullah traveled to Ramallah in support of Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Cooperation between Jordan and Israel provides security and stability for both countries and aids the U.S. campaign against ISIS in Syria. But what does the unresolved crisis portend for future relations between Jordan and the West? Will the Hashemite Kingdom remain stable in the face of the large numbers of Iraqi and Syrian refugees there? and the rest of forces among its majority Palestinian population. Mr. Schenker will bring us up to date. Mr. Schenker? Hi. Uh, Marilyn, thanks so much, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, what I want to do over the next 15 minutes or so is just give a, a brief, a brief uh, sort of situation alert or uh, situational awareness on where's Jordan at on sort of three areas. One is the economy, uh, one is security, and the other and final issue will be uh, Jordanian-Israeli relations. Um, I think all these issues are, in a way, intertwined. But let's start out with the economy. Um, Jordan has been a, a debtor nation since 1946. Um, it survives on the largesse of other states. Um, at one time, uh, the leading patron of Jordan was Saddam Hussein. Uh, since 2000 or so, it has been the West, and particularly the United States. But Jordan is still um, in, a, in a terrible situation. Um, the unemployment in the kingdom today is officially um, 18%. Uh, it's got one of the, and among the youth, by the way, it's 40%. It's got one of the lowest workforce participation uh, rates uh, in the world. I think less than 30% of the people um, actually work. And so that's 18% unemployment among those actually 30 or 36% of the Jordanians who actually work. Um, they have debt. The annual budget of Jordan is about $12 billion. There's about 9 million residents of the kingdom right now, including the 1.4 million refugees uh, from Syria mostly. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but their budget's about $12 billion. Last year, they ran a deficit of about $2 billion. Um, and that's with the United States, by the way, giving Jordan uh, about $1.7 billion in 2016 in military and economic assistance. Um, when you add up all this debt, which has been accumulating, um, it, it's nearing 95% of GDP. Um, that's a pretty high number for a country like Jordan. Um, it's a high number for any country. Um, but that means that they have to pay about a billion dollars a year in debt service. So that's a, a big deal. Um, to fill the gap, Jordan has taken on an IMF program to try and do some economic reforms and also get some handouts from the IMF. Uh, but to do so, they've had to cut subsidies on electricity, rationalize the price of gas, 
They've also had to implement the VAT tax, the value-added tax of something like 16%. Um, the people are not happy. Commodity prices are going up. Now, of course, these refugees, which are, according to Jordan, 1.4 million, um, that's about, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, 12, 13% of the population or so, um, maybe 14%. Um, they are also stressing the economy. Jordan is the fifth uh, poorest country on the face of the earth in terms of water resources. Um, it has very few natural resources. They have some shale oil that they're developing. They're doing uh, actually pretty interesting stuff with solar power um, and, um, and wind power, but it's not really developed yet. Um, but these refugees are putting a stress on all the resources, whether it be water, electricity, um, and services. So Jordan is now going, for example, in thousands of schools on two shifts. A morning the Jordanians go until about noon, then the Syrians go. Um, the, the vast majority of these refugees do not live in refugee camps. Um, there, there are two very large camps. One is Zatari in the north that has about, um, I don't know, 85 or 80,000 people in it. Uh, it's Jordan's fifth largest city. There's another one in Azraq that's got about 40,000. That's only 120,000 people total. The vast majority of these refugees live in Jordan's cities and towns, and they work, and they also get apartments, and so they drive the rents up, et cetera. Um, so far, there's not been a backlash, um, but it's an issue. Um, and this sort of relates to security, the second sort of basket of issues I wanted to talk about. You know, with all these refugees, um, the Bukhabarat, the Jordanian intel, is working overtime, overtime on security. Um, but um, it's not these refugees who are perpetrating attacks. There were a lot of security incidents in the, in the kingdom in 2016. Uh, but they were not foreign. Jordan has done an excellent job with U.S. assistance of defending its borders. Uh, they've taken casualties, but people are not infiltrating across the border and creating havoc in the kingdom. The problem is really homegrown extremism. And so you've had a series of incidents. You had uh, a man in 2016 walk into an intelligence headquarters 20 miles of Amman, kill five uh, intelligence officers, and walk out. Uh, you, had, um, uh, you had a security outpost in the east with actually U.S. troops stationed there on the border of Syria and Iraq um, where a car bomb was driven onto the base. And in both incidences, um, and six Jordanians were killed in that, in that occurrence, uh, in both incidences, um, Jordanian guards were asleep on duty. Uh, then you had an, uh, an incident in Irbid, uh, which really sort of raises issues about capability and competence, where there were seven ISIS guys in one apartment. Uh, Jordan's crack counterterrorism unit, the 71st Counterterrorism Battalion, went there uh, along with the gendarme, the militarized police. They surrounded the place and went in, and it took 12 hours for the Jordanian special forces to kill seven terrorists. In the course of the uh, the uh, counterterrorism operation, the head of the Jordanian unit was killed, um, and um, and uh, the the counterterrorism battalion actually was firing at the gendarme. So it was, they were firing at each other. There was a total lack of communication. One senior U.S. official described it to me as a total clusterfuck. Um, and then you had more recently Karak, where you know terrorists basically took over a, um, a castle in a crusader castle in a, a town not a, not a very far away from Amman, uh, killed 10 people, including a tourist. Um, and uh, during this operation, the police 
ran out of bullets and, uh, and weapons. Um, to add insult to injury, um, you had two incidents where Americans in uniform were killed over a one-year period from November 15 to November 16 on Jordanian soil. Five Americans killed in uniform on Jordanian soil. That was more during the same period uh, than in Afghanistan. Um, and we can talk more about both of those. But uh, in the second incident, where three Special Forces uh, troops were killed on a Jordanian military base, um, uh, basically the Jordanian government was not forthcoming about what happened. Um, and uh, it, it was a very big embarrassment and a potential irritant in the bilateral relationship. So all these actually are homegrown Jordanians, Jordanians of tribal origin, not Palestinian origin. And they're believed to be between 2,500 and 3,000 or so Jordanians who are currently fighting the jihad in Syria uh, in either for ISIS or um, al-Qaeda affiliates. So this is a, a troubling development. Um, one other issue to mention vis-a-vis -vis security is um, Jordan's concern about what's going on now in South Syria and, of course, the, the U.S. ceasefire agreement uh, that is signed on to with the Russians. Um, the Jordanians have been mowing the lawn in South Syria uh, for the past three years. They have a de facto safe zone there. They have some intelligence operatives. They send manned and unmanned aircraft, and they kill al-Qaeda and ISIS cells in the South. They're very comfortable with the arrangement. Um, the U.S. is operating there as well. Uh, the problem is uh, that Jordan is concerned that um, with the ceasefire that Iranian-backed um, militias, that is Hezbollah, terrorist organizations, and the Hashtashabi, uh, the Iraqi um, Shiite militias backed by Iran, will move to their border. And they're worried about this being a destabilizing um, um, uh, development. And I think they have a lot to be worried about in that regard. Uh, but that said, their border security has been um, probably the, the best news story to date. Um, finally, Jordanian-Israeli relations. Uh, Marilyn mentioned in her introduction about um, the shooting on July 23rd um, at the Israeli uh, embassy compound. Um, this was in an apartment. Um, the Israelis live on the compound. They have an apartment building that they rent um, from uh, from a Christian orthopedist um, named Hamarna. Um, and uh, apparently, although the story still hasn't come out uh, in great detail, um, a Jordanian worker um, uh, was, um, uh, I don't know, um, went berserk and tried to stab um, an Israeli security guard with a screwdriver. Um, the guard was in there trying to assemble furniture. Uh, we don't know what the problem was. This occurred during uh, some of the, the incidents in Jerusalem. Um, with the Temple Mount, so maybe uh, this uh, Jordanian was all bent out of shape about that. Um, but in the course of killing this particular Jordanian, the Israeli guard also shot and killed the, um, the, an innocent uh, Jordanian, um, actually the owner of the apartment, the Christian, um, who apparently had nothing to do with this. And the Israeli government has, um, has said they will offer compensation, but this has created um, a mini-crisis in the bilateral relationship. Um, the Jordanians initially did not want to let the guard leave the country, claiming that um, they wanted to uh, interrogate him, investigate. Um, and uh, now, uh, eventually, they let him go. Um, I think the, the immunity issue was, uh, I think they understood the importance of that. Um, but now they say the embassy will not reopen and, until this guard is, is put on trial. The, uh, 
the uh, Jordanians were particularly upset about um, the guard being welcomed by Benjamin Netanyahu uh, the day after he returned to Israel, given a, what they say was a, a hero's welcome, and they, uh, the minister, the foreign minister, uh, really attacked uh, the Israeli government on that. But there are a number of sort of outstanding issues, and not only uh, Jerusalem. You had, you know, a, a, in May, a Jordanian in Jerusalem um, stab or attempt to stab uh, an Israeli guard in Jerusalem. The guard killed the, the Jordanian assailant, uh, but in the aftermath, the Jordanian foreign minister described uh, this Jordanian national as a quote-unquote martyr. Um, obviously, this is unproductive. And you still have an unresolved issue of the killing of a, a Jordanian-Palestinian judge at, um, at King Hussein Bridge about two years ago. Um, so um, that said, and I think you know, the king has backed himself into a corner here on the issue of a, a trial because the Israelis are not going to put um, the security guard on trial. I don't think there's any way that's going to happen, although they are doing their own independent investigation. Despite all this, and despite the fact that the Israeli embassy may be closed for some time in Amman, uh, the strategic cooperation, uh, what is the most important aspect of this bilateral relationship, um, remains strong. Um, it is um, so deep on any number of levels. Intelligence cooperation in Israel has um, access, is able to fly drones over Jordanian territory in the north, over southern Syria, and get visibility there. Um, and the intelligence liaison sharing is extremely strong. Um, likewise, the cooperation with the military is strong. Now, every now and then, we hear sort of unfortunate incidences, a Jordanian pilot who was uh, F-16 pilot who was supposed to train in Israel with his, Jordan, with his Israeli counterparts, refused to go. Um, he was relieved of his command, um, and he gave an interview with the press saying that he joined the Jordanian military to fight Israel, not to cooperate with the enemy. Um, and eventually, actually, he was restated um, to his uh, to his role, to his uh, given his commission back. But um, aside from that, um, the, the the Israel continues to provide support to the Jordanian military. The military is trained together. They work together, and they share intelligence. And I think that at the official level, um, this remains extremely strong, and it's nothing to be worried about. And actually is a strategic boon to both um, Israel um, and Jordan. Um, and I don't think that's going to, uh, to change for the worse anytime soon. Uh, the problem, ultimately, of course, is that while uh, the Jordanian political elite, uh, the palace, um, the government, um, all have no issue with Israel whatsoever. Um, this is, like Egypt, um, a peace not between peoples, but between uh, Israel and the government or the palace uh, in Jordan. Um, most of the people in Jordan um, have very low regard for Israel. Um, there is a very high level of anti-Americanism um, in Jordan uh, that continues to prevail despite the fact that the United States gives Jordan what is equivalent to almost 10% of their annual budget every year. So um, let's say that it's, uh, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that Jordan isn't going anywhere. People have been predicting its demise since 1946, um, looking at all the neighbors. 
Um, Jordan looks pretty good. It could be a lot worse. And I think while we're in a mini-crisis in Jordanian-Israeli relations, I think uh, eventually this too shall pass. Uh, the king can pick up the phone and call the Israeli premier, and um, the, the embassy is not so critical. Um, it's important, I think, to get it back there eventually, and I'll just finish up with this point, because it will be key, I think, for Israel to have strong relations with its peace partners if it wants to capitalize on all this regional anti-Iran sentiment um, to open up um, deeper ties with uh, with its Gulf neighbors, with Gulf with uh, with Gulf states, and I think that uh, that's really the opportunity here. That's the golden ring, and I think Jordan um, is you know part of the way to to getting that for for Israel. So I'll leave it there. Um, I'm happy to take um, any and all of your questions. Thanks. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, the question and answer. That period will now begin, and we invite your participation. Please note that when there are no questions in the queue, the moderator will ask a question. To join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you wish to identify yourself when your line has been unmuted, please do so. Please remember, if you have your phone on mute, take it off mute when you are selected to ask your question. We'll take our first question now, and caller, if you wish to identify yourself, please do so when you hear your line is unmuted. Hello, uh, this is Daniel Pipes. Thank you, David. That was a wonderful brief exposition. Striking by its absence was the lack of mention of Palestinians, who not too long ago would have dominated the discussion. Uh, from By implication, you're saying it is the East Bankers who are trouble for the regime uh, who are violent against Americans and others and not the Palestinians. Could you say a word about that evolution? Yeah, thanks, Daniel. That's a that's a good point. Listen, I, we always used to talk about Palestinians when we talked about Jordan, and it, you know the issues of of Jerusalem still resonate certainly with the Palestinian population. Since 2011, Palestinians have by and large, with this whole Arab Spring, whatever we'd like to call it, um, have not come to the streets in Jordan. I think they realize that the security apparatus, which is largely dominated by East Bank or tribal, uh, sorry, um, East Bank or you know, tribal origin. Um, the Jordanians would have come down so hard on them. They did come out to protest a little bit in this latest round of, of Temple Mount stuff, um, but they've largely been quiet. And I think uh, part of this is that most uh, you know, most of the people in Jordan are looking around at the chaos of Syria, Egypt, uh, Libya, Yemen. They say we don't want that. We have some issues, whether it be governance, whether it be uh, some, you know, not full uh, necessarily rights for Palestinians in Jordan. Um, but um, by and large, you look at it and say the situation is good. Um, you have um, with everything that's going on with the refugees, with the, the issues of the jihadis, with the fears over, over ISIS, um, this whole division between Palestinians and uh, the East Bank or Jordanians has sort of gone away. Um, it, it's not being discussed. And you probably have between a 20 and 30% intermarriage rate uh, between Palestinians and Jordanians of, of tribal origin. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's been surprising. You had a number of Palestinians who've gone up to southern Syria and joined the Jihad, a couple of them affiliated with uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates up there, Jabhat al-Nusra, as it was formerly known. Um, but uh, really, in the kingdom, we've not seen any of these radicalized Palestinians. Um, the problem really is 
um, to date, and we don't know if this is going to continue this way, the problem really has been to date the Jordanians of, of tribal origin. And uh, I think that's very worrying for the king because obviously these are the people that staff the security apparatus um, and were responsible for the king, the killings in uh, Mwakar, um of uh, you know, two Americans, two South Africans, and two Jordanians uh, back in uh, 2015, and also obviously in Jafar, um, killing the three special forces officers in November 2016. So yeah, um, it's um, it's a good point, Mike. You're you're absolutely right. They're not part of the conversation right now, Palestinians. Thank you. We'll go to our next question and caller. If you wish to identify yourself, please do so when you hear your line is unmuted. This is Larry Gould. <clears throat> I have a two-part question. Uh, <clears throat> are the Jordanians getting closer with Israel <clears throat> militarily because of potential problems of Syrian government and uh, rebel forces on the near the border of Jordan and Syria? And the second question is, who's, pay, who's paying for care for the tremendous number of Syrian refugees who have entered Jordan? Uh, thanks, Larry. Those are two good questions. Um, I think that uh, you've had since 2000 with uh, with King Abdullah coming on the scene after the death of, of King Hussein, um, Jordan moving ever closer to Israel militarily. Um, this just makes sense for, for the Jordanian military. You know, I was in um, just this uh, last week, I was in Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina, and um, you know there was a talk, and I, I don't want to say who gave the talk, but it was by a U.S. military officer describing Jordanian military capabilities. Um, I'm reminded of this saying that in the in the, the kingdom of the blind, the one the one-eyed man is king. Um, Jordan has um, a very you know a very competent military by Arab standards. Uh, but it's you know it's not up to a Western standard at all. Whether we're talking about special forces, whether we're talking about um, the standard military, et cetera, um, it serves Jordan's interest in building the capabilities, uh, and is a force multiplier for them. They share many of the same enemies, um, and are interested in targeting both Iranian influence in the region, um, preventing Iran from establishing a foothold in the border on the border, um, counterterrorism, uh, intelligence sharing. Is while the Jordanians have good um, human human intel um, in this part of the world, the Israelis have better technical capabilities. So it's a good a good match, and I think um, that partially has been sort of encouraged by the growing closeness of Jordan with Washington. Um, it's uh, sort of lubricated this whole process. Um, Syria is only only part of it. Um, I think this is um, sort of a natural progression. But once again, it's very quiet because the people of Jordan um, don't uh, don't want to hear about it. They really don't appreciate it, and um, and it wouldn't be popular. And every mention of it um, is merely an embarrassment for the palace. As for who's paying for the refugees, I think that the uh, World Bank, with the UNACR, the High Commission on Refugees, says that, that it costs about $2 billion a year to feed and, and care for these people, to give these people um, subsidies, cash ration, uh, housing subsidies, of course, to run the refugee camps. The United States um, is the largest donor 
um, for uh, the Syrian refugees um, in the region. Um, in terms of Jordan, I think we gave them 350 or $380 million for that last year. Um, so it's a substantial amount of money. Um, it would be nice if some of our friends stepped up uh, to that kind of level, um, or maybe even the Arab states, which um, needless to say, uh, just look at you know all their all their pledges to the Palestinians over the year that were never realized. Um, they've not really been doing uh, their share, um, uh, but uh, it, it's enormous burden on on Jordan. And some of their officials, their director for their minister for international cooperation, a guy named Imad Fakhouri, has said recently, you know, they want this war in Syria to end so quickly so they can you know, basically refool the refugees to shove them back into Syria against their will because they want to get rid of them. Um, you know, I don't think that's going to happen, but the fact of the matter is most of these refugees will not want to return home because they weren't fleeing ISIS. They were fleeing the Assad regime, and the Assad regime will still be there when they get back. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, so just a reminder to everyone, if you wish to get in the queue to ask a question, please press star 1. And at this time, we'll turn it over to our moderator. And Oh, excuse me, Marilyn, we do have another caller with a question, so I'll go there first. Please. Okay, so caller, uh, you can identify yourself if you wish to do so when you hear your line is unmuted. Uh, this is William Pike. Um, uh, first, two things. Um, Early in the conversation, you said that these uh, refugees live in the cities, and then later on you referred to financing the refugee camps. Uh, mm -hmm. It sounds like a contradiction, probably a minor point, but could you clarify that? Sure. Um, so I, I, I put it into two, sort of two groups. Um, you have a total, uh, according to the Jordan, now the Jordanians always exaggerate the number of refugees they had. Uh, back in uh, 2003, uh, for example, after the invasion of Iraq, the Jordanians said they had 400,000 refugees. A U.S. embassy said they had 180,000. Um, they they want to have 400,000 because they'll get paid for 400,000. They'll get better you know, international donations, et cetera, and charge a higher rent. But um, they say now that they've got 1.4 million. Um, of those uh, 1.4 million, about 120,000 live in refugee camps. And these are run by UN High Commission on Refugees. Uh, they have schools, hospitals, Safeway grocery stores, smart cards that they give to the people. The housing is paid for. These are caravans. Uh, most of the houses have satellite dishes, free, uh, uh, free electricity cable. People get married there. They die there. They give birth there, etc. cetera. Um, but that's only 120 thousand between the two largest refugee camps. There in are those major... camps, are they being taught to be Jordanians, the Jordanian language, Jordanian culture, or, or what, are they, what are the kids learning? Uh, the kids go to UNHCR schools and learn a standard curriculum that is being taught um, by a combination of qualified Syrian teachers and Jordanian teachers. Um, they're not learning to be Jordanians. They're not getting citizenship. Um, for the first three or four years um, that these uh, refugees were there, um, they, uh, they were not allowed to work. 
Um, the Jordanians have recently, under, U, under uh, European pressure uh, for some foreign assistance, uh, opened up a series of categories that, uh, that uh, these refugees, whether in camps or out of camps, can work in. That's construction, uh, that's domestic labor, that's agriculture, um, things that Jordanians, by and large, don't do. Um, and there's room for them. I think what the Jordanians want is for the Syrians to supplant the uh, the Egyptian expatriates who are working in the kingdom. Believe it or not, notwithstanding the 18% official unemployment rate and 40% among the youth, um, there are 635,000 Egyptian expatriate laborers in the kingdom doing work that Jordanians won't do. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, so these people are working uh, if they can find work. Um, but the the real issue is what the what the people outside the the refugee camps are doing, and they are. If you go into a coffee shop, um, the guy that is bringing your, your tea and your nargila, your water pipe, these guys used to be 100% Egyptian. Uh, now you're hearing Syrian dialect. Um, but the Jordanians, you know, these guys are going to Jordanian schools if they're living outside the refugee camps, if they go to schools at all. And so, you know, they're learning Jordanian curricula. Okay, a uh, different topic. Uh, you said that the uh, the king and the government are, have no problems with Israel. They communicate, they get along, but the people do not. Is this an untenable situation? Uh, can you put some color on that? Uh, uh, does the king of the government care to uh, convert the uh, people, or is that beyond hope? Or Give us some color on that. Well, listen, I think um, for anybody who's, who's traveled to Jordan, um, uh, you know they're they're very hospitable people, um, but if you scratch the surface a little bit, there's you know a real dislike of Israel. A lot of it's centered around you know uh, the the situation with the Palestinians in the West Bank, um, but by and large, you know, uh, really just no great love for. Um, uh, there is a sense of resignation that Jordan, that Israel is not going anywhere, but uh, you know every now and then you know the kingdom signed a. Uh, 10-year, $15 billion uh, deal to purchase natural gas from, from Israel. And this was something that, you know, every Friday now there's a small protest outside the, the Ministry of, uh, of Energy in Jordan. Um, but this is not, you know, driving people to the streets. I think there's a sense, by and large, of, of resignation. Um, so what can the king do to push, basically, normalization um, with Israel? Um, there's never a good time for this. Right, the king, the king has a lot of pressures. Right, um, let me give you like one thing that just happened. You know, a couple, couple, three, five weeks ago. So I talked about the killings of these three U.S. service uh, men in Jaffa Air Force Base. So after the killings, the Jordanian government basically said, "Well, it was the special forces. They blew the procedure. They were drunk when they showed up at the base." Uh, there was a weapon fired. The Jordanian was just doing his job when he responded. And they maintained this for five or six months. Uh, un incredibly, they maintained this ridiculous line, even though there was a video of the whole incident showing the Jordanian guard tracking down and hunting down and killing the Americans. Um, uh, well, meanwhile, they had a trial of this guy, right? Because the families, the American government, put pressure on the Jordanians to not sweep this under the carpet. And lo and behold, this guy was convicted. Right? And now the tribes are out there protesting. The tri this guy was from one of Jordan's largest tribes. Um, out there protesting because, you know, the Jordanian government said for six months that this guy was innocent, and all of a sudden the guy's got, you know, basically life in prison with hard labor. So the king has to worry about that. He's got to worry about Jerusalem. 
right? And he's got a population that is not amenable. I mean, the Pew, there was a Pew poll from last year, or 2015, that looked at 39 countries, right, including Pakistan, right? And Jordan had the highest rate of anti-Americanism among the population of all these countries, including Pakistan, right? So this money has not helped. And it's not really, I mean, it's the same thing in Egypt, right? You've got a government that has never had better relations with the government of Israel and the Sisi regime. Um, and yet, right, Israel is flying UAVs and, and manned aircraft to kill ISIS in the Sinai, right, violating Egypt's sovereignty with Egypt's permission every day. Um, the relations have never been better, and yet the Egyptian people have no regard for Israel, right? This, and I think that it's, you know, we're not going to get there anytime soon. And... This is sort of a lower tier issue that I'd be pressing the king on, frankly. Um, you know, I think that he's got uh, you know other other things to do that are are more important right now. Um, you know, in the long term, it, it means changing the textbooks. It means uh, you know root, doing counter radicalization in the kingdom. He's got all these things to do before he starts uh, dealing with uh, you know sort of pressing a normalization agenda. I think. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, we've come to 4.32. Uh, we've reached the end of our time. And the Middle East Forum would like to thank Mr. Schenker for his briefing and to our participants for calling in. This concludes our conference call.